You know, it just occurred to me moments ago that this is our first Easter Sunday in this space. Did you realize that? Last year we were doing that uh, cobbled together kind of remote worship service thing that, um, to be frank, I hated. But uh, we're here, and so a year has passed. We've made it to this point, and uh, thank you, God, for this space. So how about a round of applause for God? Thank you. How about that? It's still kind of weird for me to be in a uh, very churchy-looking space, right, after all those years in the theater, Uh, but we thank God for this space, and we thank you all for worshiping with us. Those of you who are out on the lawn, those of you here in the sanctuary, those of you who are are in YouTube land, thank you so much for worshiping. I see some of you decided to get dressed up today. You look very nice. Yes, look at you. I didn't know you could clean up like that. I did iron my t-shirt for you all. I just wanted to look fancy. No big deal, no big deal. But here we are, we're worshiping Jesus. Uh, We're actually bringing a message series to a close. If you're newer to Hope Community Church, this is what we do. Um, On a regular basis, we preach in a series, and so I'll talk about a topic for a number of weeks. So we are bringing a series to a close today, and this series has been called Enemy of the Empire. Enemy of the Empire. We're calling this Enemy of the Empire because Jesus was accused of being an enemy of the Roman Empire, and a threat to Roman authority. That's what the Sanhedrin, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, that's what they accused Jesus of being, was an enemy of the empire. And the question is, was Jesus actually an enemy to the Roman empire? Was he actually a threat to Roman authority? And as we've been making our way through this series, uh, you know, I I don't know what to think about that. What do you think? (laughs) Was Jesus a threat to the Roman empire? Was he a threat to Roman authority? I mean, I I guess in some ways you can make a case for that. But it certainly seems like Jesus was a bigger threat to a different entity altogether. It seems like Jesus was a threat to the religious establishment of his day. You know, the the Sanhedrin, the the rulers, the Jewish leaders. He certainly was a threat to their authority. You know, and and in some ways Jesus is still a threat to the religious establishment. But that's a topic for another day. But anyway, yes. And so yes, Jesus did come along and he was a threat to, to their power. He was a threat to their authority because Jesus came along and he wasn't behaving the way that, that they wanted him to behave, right? They wanted him to behave in a certain way. They wanted their Messiah to come along and try to prove themselves to the Sanhedrin, but he wasn't about that, right? Now, in the very beginning of this series, I, um, I asked you all to consider a question. And uh, that was five weeks ago, so I wouldn't expect you to remember this. But in the very beginning of this series, I asked you a question, what are you going to do about Jesus? Does that sound vaguely familiar for anybody who was here? What are you going to do about Jesus? And I realize that's a weird way to phrase the question, but we're a weird church and I'm a weird guy. What are you going to do about Jesus? So we start our series with that question, and that's where we're going to land today, is with asking that question again, what are you going to do about Jesus? Uh, My story is really not unique at all. Um, I grew up going to church. I was a church kid. Um, Some of you in the room were church kids growing up, Catholic, Protestant, denominational, non-denominational. I was a church kid. Um, And so in church, I was uh, told some stuff about Jesus. I remember being three years old in church and uh, singing the song, Jesus Loves Me. Does anybody know that song? Jesus loves me, this I know. You guys know this? I'm not making it up. It's a real song, all right? If you went to Sunday school in the 80s, you know the song, Jesus Loves Me. And so I was told that Jesus loves me, and I was told about the resurrection. I was told about the crucifixion. I was told that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And so you learn this stuff. You receive this information. You're exposed to some stuff about Jesus as a church kid. And at a certain point in my life, I needed to make some decisions. What am I going to do 
about Jesus? What am I going to do with this information that I have received? Am I going to accept it? Am I going to reject it? Am I going to accept it without looking into it? Okay, some, some adult told me when I was a kid that Jesus loves me, so I'm just going to believe it. Am I going to look into it? Am I going to reject it? And listen, whether you went to church as a kid or not, we all have some level of exposure to Jesus, right? Some level of exposure. You've heard some stuff about Jesus. You've heard some stories about Jesus. Maybe some of what you heard was based on history. Maybe some of it is verifiable fact. Maybe some of what you've heard about Jesus is nothing more than religious folklore. I don't know what you've heard about Jesus. But at some point in your life, you're going to have to figure out what you are going to do about Jesus. I mean, that's just the thing that all of us have to figure out at some point. What are we going to do about Jesus? This was the dilemma. This was the issue that the Sanhedrin, the, rulers, the, the Jewish rulers, had to figure out is what are we going to do about this Jesus character? I mean, Jesus enters the scene. He begins teaching people as a rabbi. He's traveling from town to town. He's taking on this role of rabbi. He's collecting disciples like a rabbi. But there was a big question of how did this guy become a rabbi? I mean, in order to become a rabbi, you need to train under another rabbi for 15 years, and then you need to have two rabbis vouch for you and say, this guy has the authority to go and be a rabbi. Like, where did this guy come from? Who is this Jesus? Isn't his dad the carpenter? Why is he going around teaching as a rabbi? And so there he is, and he's performing miracles, and he's teaching things about God, and he's developing this following. And meanwhile, he doesn't make any effort to present himself to the temple, to the hmm, Jewish religious leaders. I got it. Here we go. He makes no effort to prove himself to the Sanhedrin. He makes no effort to do that. Like, well, where, what is this guy about? And so he's teaching about God, and he's a threat to their authority, a threat to the Sanhedrin, an enemy in many ways of the Sanhedrin. They need to figure out what are we going to do about this Jesus. So they try to discredit him. They try to say, oh, he's performing miracles, but he's empowered by Satan. And Jesus says, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm empowered by Satan, then who are your people empowered by when they perform miracles? Like, oh, my God, is there. So they try to trap him, they try to question him, and he just keeps slipping out of these traps. And this following gets larger and larger. And then finally we get to this occasion where Jesus performs this miracle, this big, bold miracle. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus was like extremely dead, like days dead, buried dead, in the tomb dead. And Jesus says, roll away the stone, the dead man comes back to life. And when the members of the Sanhedrin see this happen, they have a little meeting. We talked about this in week one. They have a little meeting. What are we going to do about Jesus? If he keeps going on like this, this is what they say. If he keeps going on like this, everyone will believe in him. And we can't have that happen. Why not? What's so bad about that? Why can't everybody believe in him? Well, if, if that happens, I mean, what's going to happen with Rome? What's going to happen with Rome? If the Romans find out that we have a man here claiming to be a king, then those Romans, this is the Roman Empire we're talking about, they don't mess around, they're going to come in and they will destroy us. They'll kill us, literally destroy us and destroy our temple. We have to stop this man. What are we going to do about Jesus? We've got to stop this man. And the high priest speaks up and says, you guys know nothing at all. You know nothing at all. Don't you realize that it's better for this one man to die than for all of us? to die, and they make a decision. We need to kill this Jesus. It was just a matter of when and how. How are we going to do this? How are we going to send an assassin in? Does anybody know an assassin? I don't know any assassins. Do we like list something on Craigslist looking for an assassin? How does this work? I don't know how this works. So they're not going to get an assassin. That's not going to happen. Well, we have to like arrest him, and then we put him on trial, and then we can have him killed, but how are we going to arrest him? 
I mean, the thing is, I mean, Jesus was there, he was preaching in public, but if they tried to arrest him with his following right there, then his followers would, would uprise. It's like, well, we can't do that. We've got to find a way to arrest him when he's secluded. And so that's what they figured they had. It. We had that's the only way we can get this guy is if there's no crowd around him, then we could have our chance to get at him and arrest him and take him away. Now, as all this is going on, Jesus is with his followers. One of his followers is named Judas. One of the 12 was Judas. And there is this event that happens. Um, Lazarus' sister, Mary, um, there's a dinner being held in Christ's honor, in Jesus' honor. And uh, she comes along and she takes this perfume. It was very expensive. It was worth a year's wages. And she uses this perfume and she, she anoints Jesus' feet with it. And um, there's some backlash over that. And so the disciple, specifically Judas, speaks up and said, listen, I feel like this was a waste. We could have taken this and, and, and taken it and sold it and used that money to feed the poor. And Jesus says, listen, you always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me with you. In other words, Jesus said to Judas, I'm worth it. I'm worth this expense. This isn't a waste. I'm worth it. And Judas had a real issue with that. And he decided in his heart that this man that he's been following, he, he stopped believing he stopped believing this was a good man. He stopped believing this was the Messiah, and he looked for a way to betray him. And he met with the high priest, and he said, what will you give me if I turn him over to you? And so here comes Judas with the answer to the Sanhedrin's problem. How are we going to arrest Jesus? Well, Judas knew where he would be. And so this deal is made. We make our way to that Passover, to that last supper, the last time that Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And as he's there, they're breaking the bread. And as they're breaking the bread, they're supposed to be remembering how they were freed, how the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt, and how they had to make their bread in haste so they could receive their freedom and be freed from, from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus takes that bread and says, I want you, from now on when you eat this, I want you to remember me. This is my body that I'm breaking for you. And then Jesus took that cup and he a cup of wine, and they were supposed to be remembering the blood of the lamb that they had to paint, that the Israelites had to paint above their doors so the angel of death would pass over them before they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And so they were supposed to remember that blood of the lamb, but Jesus takes that cup and says, from now on when you drink this, I want you to drink this and remember me. This is my blood that I'm shedding for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so he changes the meaning of Passover, and now we are to remember him. And after they celebrate that Passover meal, Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives. It was a place that he often went to pray, and Judas knew exactly where he would be. And while he was there praying, Judas was already gone. He'd already met with the temple guard and the temple guard. They make their way to that spot. They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And they fall to their knees for some reason. He says, I am, and they fall to their knees, and we don't know exactly why that happened. Maybe when he spoke those words, I am, the very same words that God spoke to Moses, maybe when he spoke those words, some of the glory of God slipped out of him. We don't know. But all of a sudden, they bowed when he said, I am. So he's taken. He's arrested. He's put on trial before the Sanhedrin. They lie about him. They try to come up with some kind of evidence about him. Finally, they just say, if you're the Son of God, just tell us. He says, yes, I'm the Son of God. And they find him guilty of blasphemy. Well, it's only blasphemy if it's not true, right? Blasphemy is telling lies about God. It's only blasphemy if it's not true. So they say, just tell us, are you the Son of God? He says, yes, I am. They say, blasphemy. And so now they have grounds to have him killed. And here's what they could have done at this point. This is important to note. Here's what they could have done. They could have just had him killed right then and there. They could have gathered up some stones and have stoned Jesus right there on the spot. They could have. And history does record the Sanhedrin doing that very thing, stoning people to death for blasphemy. But they didn't want to be the ones to do it. 
And so they took Jesus to Rome. They took him to the Roman governor, to Pontius Pilate. They said, this man is guilty of subverting our nation. He opposes paying taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be a king. Well, most of that's not true, all right? So they changed the charge against Jesus. He was guilty of blasphemy. Now they're saying that he's really guilty of trying to create this uprising. And so Pilate meets with Jesus. And what does Pilate determine? This man is innocent. Time and time again, Pilate says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. He tries to release him. He tries to release him. He tries to release him. He knows what's up. He can see the dynamic. He realizes that these people are just jealous of Jesus and his following. He's attracting a following. He knows it's for jealousy's sake. Pilate's wife has a nightmare about this, and she says, Pilate, she sends him a note, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. At the Sanhedrin, the high priest, they keep pushing, they keep pushing, they keep pushing, so Pilate finally caves in. He does the unthinkable. He says, all right, let's have this man flogged. Let's have him beaten. Let's have an innocent man beaten. So he was beaten within an inch of his life. He received that 39 lashes. We talked about this last week, that 39. See, the Romans had determined that 40 was enough to kill a man, but 30 was just enough to keep him alive. Perhaps permanently disfigured, perhaps blinded, perhaps made deaf, perhaps brain damaged, but just enough to keep him alive, 39 lashes. So he received those 39 lashes, and to add insult to injury, the, the guards, when they found out this man claimed to be the king, they threw a purple robe on him. They took this crown, made it of thorns, and pressed it into his head. He's brought back to Pilate. Pilate presents presents this disfigured, this, this beaten Jesus before the crowd and says, see, are you satisfied? Look what I've done to him. All right, you, you, clearly you hate this guy. I've had him beaten up. There you go. I said, no, 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 that's not enough. Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate says, I find, listen, guys, did I stutter? I said, I find no basis for a charge against him. If you want him crucified, then you go crucify him. They said, no, you crucify him. He has to be crucified because we have a law, and this man claimed to be a son of God. So you have to crucify him. Pilate says, wait, this is new information. Son of God, what's this about? Pilate tries to free Jesus. Pilate tries to free Jesus. Pilate tries to free Jesus. He sees he's getting nowhere. But then an uprising might start. And so Pilate's a man. He's trying to keep his head down. He's trying to maintain the peace. He does not want Caesar on his case. He does not want Caesar on his back. It's fine. You want him crucified, but I wash my hands of this. His blood is on you. And so he's led away. He's taken and he's crucified. Another important thing to note, it was not a custom to have someone flogged and then crucified. It was one or the other. You did not do that. Now, the Romans at this time, they were known for cruelty, they were known for torture, but even they had their limits. You did not do that. You did not have someone beaten and then crucified. It was one or the other, but Jesus, Jesus suffered both of those things. If you consider the, the, just the, the awful history of humankind, the terrible things that we've done to each other, it is quite possible that Jesus Christ suffered physically more than any other human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. It's entirely possible that that's the case. And so he was put on that cross, and he was put there between, there's three crosses, criminal on either side, and there was some taunting that takes place. And one of the criminals begins to taunt Jesus, listen, you, you know, you helped other people, just get us down from here. The other criminal says, listen, we, we deserve this. We're guilty, but this man, he's done nothing wrong. And here's what he says to Jesus. is, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, just the night before, <clears throat> just the night before, Jesus had said to his disciples, I want you to remember me. And now here's this man being crucified next to Jesus. And in that moment, he, he realized something. He acknowledged something that this man really was and is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he says to King Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That's very important. That's very important. This man on the cross, he had no time to go and do good deeds. He had no time to go and be baptized. He had no time to go and do some kind of religious rituals because it was never about that. It's never about religion. It's not about ritual. It's about relationship. And as he hung on the cross, this man acknowledged the reality of who Jesus was and is the Son of the living God. Remember me, King Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. Today, you will be with me in paradise. All of the disciples, except for one, all of the disciples had fled. There was only one disciple that was there at the foot of the cross, and it was John. And John stood there with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they watched him suffer. And from the cross, Jesus looked down at his mother. He looked down at his disciple. He said, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. From the cross, Jesus does this. And from that point on, we're told that that John took Mary into his home and cared for her as his mother. As we get to those last words of Jesus, um, if you've ever read the Bible, if you've ever read from the Gospels, um, there's three words that appear in your English Bible. It is finished, and that's, that's a pretty famous last words in English. It, it is finished. However, if you read the original Greek, you realize that it's not three words. It's just one term. It's a Greek term, and it's a financial term. And so just before Jesus dies, just before he turns his spirit over to his Father, he speaks one word, to die. To die. It was an accounting term. It was a financial term, and it means the debt is paid in full. The debt is paid in full. And what we understand is that on that cross, Jesus, He took our sins into His body. Peter tells us that on that tree, on that cross, He bore our sins in His flesh, and our sins died with Jesus on that cross. And what we're told is in that moment, on that cross, Jesus cries out for the first time, my God, my God, where are you? Because he feels that separation from the Father and he experiences the hell that we deserve on that cross, that separation from Father God. And once that debt has been paid, Jesus says to Telestai, the debt has been paid and full. And then he gives up his spirit to his Father and Jesus dies. And they take him down from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who were followers in secret of Jesus. They take down the body of Jesus, the lifeless corpse of Jesus from the cross. How many movies have been made about this? How many shows? How many times have we told this story? In fact, one of the movies is called The Greatest Story Ever Told, right? Isn't that The Greatest Story Ever Told? I know there's that Chosen series that's out right now, right? There's a whole bunch of Christian people on my case telling me I need to watch this. I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it, people. I will. I will. But if I were going to make a movie about the life of Jesus, here's what I would do, okay? And by the way, I'm not going to do this. Nobody's asking me to. But if I were going to make a movie about the life of Jesus, here's what I'd do. Right at that moment where they take his body down from the cross, we would have a flashback. And we would flashback to something Jesus said in John chapter 10. If you have a Bible with you, if you could take a look at this, John chapter 10. John's about yay far back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So just imagine this. We've seen Jesus come down from a cross. And then we flash back to what Jesus says. John chapter 10, beginning with verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. 
the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know, there's a question of, you know, okay, who, who do we blame for this? This innocent man has been killed. Who do we blame for this? Do we blame Judas? Do we blame the rest of the disciples that weren't there to defend him? I mean, do we blame Pilate? Do we blame the Sanhedrin? Do we blame the soldiers that put the nails through his hands? Who do we blame for the death of this innocent man? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when the wolf is coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. There's a difference between just having some kind of a religious leader who's not invested, who doesn't care, who doesn't love, and the one who actually cares and loves and wants to protect and wants to save and wants to redeem. Jesus is the good shepherd. Verse 14, he says it again, I am. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Relationship. I know you, you know me. Relationship, not religion, not ritual. Relationship. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. That connection, that relationship, that intimacy. I know you, and you know me. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is speaking about the Gentiles. I mean, his audience was all Jewish. And he says, I've got to bring in the Gentiles as well. They're all going to be one flock under me, the one shepherd. Verse 17, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. This is what Jesus says. No one, no one takes my life from me. Do you realize Jesus is the Son of God, but He also is God. He is one with the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that He and the Father are one. That means Jesus is God. And guess what? You can't kill God. You can't. Nobody could. When Jesus was arrested, Peter picks up his sword and tries to attack, tries to fight back. He says, no, Peter, Peter, Jesus, Peter, no. No, don't you realize my father could send down legions of angels? Peter, no, this has to happen. And when he stands before Pontius Pilate, Pilate says, don't you realize I have the power to free you or crucify? Jesus says, no, you don't. You have no power except the power that's been given to you from above. No one took his life from him. No one killed Jesus. He laid it down for us. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Listen to this. I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Cut to Sunday morning. Sunday morning, two of the women who were followers of Jesus, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, they go to the tomb. They've got some, um, some spices. They're going to anoint the body. They didn't have a chance to finally to finish preparing the body before sundown, on, sunset on Friday, and so the Sabbath was beginning. So now was the first morning after the Sabbath. They were there to do this, and they're on their way, and they're thinking, wait a minute, who's going to roll the stone away for us? And they get to the tomb, and the stone has already been rolled away, and there are two men there that they let, later recognize are angels. They say, why are you looking for the living? Among the dead, he is risen. And so Mary Magdalene, we're told that she goes back to the disciples and says, hey guys, guess what? He's risen. He's not there. Wait, what? what? 
He's not, what do you mean he's not in the tomb? He's not there. We were just there. We just went. We took our spices. We got there. The stone was rolled away. He's not there. And so two of them, Peter and John, they run. They run to the tomb to see what is going on here. And John's faster than Peter. So John gets there first, but he stands outside looking and like, what's going on in there? He didn't want to go in. Peter gets there second, but he runs right into that empty tomb and he sees, well, there are the grave garments, but where's the body? Where is he? Peter and John, they walk away from that experience. They, they leave, they go back to the rest of the disciples, but they're Mary Magdalene. She stays behind and she's weeping and she's crying and she sees a man, she sees the gardener. He says, woman, why are you weeping? He says, well, they've taken away the body of my Lord. If you know where it is, please, sir, please tell me. And the gardener speaks up and says, Mary. She looks up at the gardener and realizes that's not the gardener. <laughs> it's Jesus. He's back. Can you imagine the emotion, whoa, I mean, someone you love, and I know this is kind of graphic, and I apologize for this example, but just imagine, you know what it's like to go to a funeral with somebody you love, and what if you showed up and you looked, and that coffin is empty, where is the body, where, whoa, alive, the terror, the joy, the excitement, the emotion, and she reaches out to him, and she wants to cling on to him, and says, tell my brothers, tell my brothers, tell the disciples, and so Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, and he appears to these two guys. They're on their road, and see, they're not part of the 12 disciples, but they were followers of Jesus, and they saw the stuff that happened, and they saw the crucifixion. They were really hoping that Jesus would be their redeemer, but they go, great. Now I guess that's out the window. He's been crucified. And so they're on the road, and Jesus appears among them, but they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And Jesus gives them this seven-mile-long sermon, this seven-mile trip from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They're walking back. Jesus explains that all this needed to happen. Then once they get to Emmaus, they sit down, and they break bread together. And when they break bread together, they realize it's Jesus. It's him. He's back. And then he disappears. He does that. The disciples, they're gathered together. A room behind a locked door. They were afraid. They were afraid that the Romans might be after them or the Sanhedrin might be after them. So they're in this secret spot. They're in this locked room. And all of a sudden, among them is Jesus. Peace be with you. That's the first word he says. Peace. Don't freak out. I'm back. The, the, the shock, the joy, the excitement, the terror, all of the above. And Jesus says to them, you guys have anything to eat? <laughs> And he sits there and he has his breakfast with them. And can you imagine? I mean, there's got to be comical moments in all of this, right? I just imagine the disciples watching him eat breakfast like, what? There he is. He's back. And Paul tells us he appears to over 500 people. And he's with them for about 40 days. He's with his disciples. They see him. And then before their very eyes, he ascends up into heaven. Wow. What a story. What a story. But what if it's more than just a story? What if it's more than just a story? And so I ask you the question, what are you going to do about Jesus? You know, it's one thing to look back and kind of, you know, oh, I'm going to do my research and I'm going to read up on this and I'm going to consider what, what's verifiable fact and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to do my research and figure out if I really believe that this happened or not. And that's, that's good. I encourage you to do that. But see, this, this gets complicated. You know why this gets complicated? Because Jesus, Jesus loves us. All right? Nobody took his life from him. He was not obligated to do any of this. He did all this because he loves us. This was for love's sake. 
All right. You enter into the story of Jesus because He did all this for you because He loves you. Jesus loves you. So what are you going to do about that? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this. Maybe when you're younger and you're dating and you start seeing that person, it's getting a little bit more serious and that person says, I love you. And you're thinking, whoa, I didn't know we were there yet, right? <laughs> Have you ever been there? I love you. Oh, dope. And I love spending time with you, right? That awkward moment, right? Right? Listen, I've been on both ends of that. It's no fun either way. And I think you're super great, right? Love, change, oh, love changes things. This isn't just about, this isn't just about historical study. Do you believe this really happened? You are a part of this story. You are a part of this story. Jesus died on that cross in your place, not because he had to, not because somebody else put him there, but because he loves you. What are you going to do about Jesus? Will you keep him at bay? Trying to keep your relationship professional, trying to keep him distant, trying to be, trying to remain neutral. I'm going to remain neutral about this stuff, and Jesus loves me, and that's all fine. I know preacher says it, and I know there's a song about it, but you know what? Let's just, let's just keep my distance from Jesus. And there are other people out there that are Christians, and they believe, and they're saying, that's good for them, and I'm polite. I'm going to be polite about it, right? I'm not going to be rude. But I'm just going to keep my distance from Jesus. Will you reject that love? Will you reject it? I mean, this is what, this is what Christ has done for us. Because He loves us, He's died for us, He's suffered for us, and He's presented us with this gift, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life. Will we reject that gift and say, no, oh, no, thank you, no, thank you? Or will you receive it? Will you receive the gift that Jesus has given to you, the gift of eternal life, the gift of forgiveness of sins? Listen, I'll tell you right now, this gift, these gifts, they were very expensive. They were very expensive. They cost him his life. But he loves you. Jesus loves you. When he was before Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus says, listen, my kingdom, it's not, it's not of this world. But if we believe what the Bible says to be true, and I do, one day Jesus will come back and he will establish his perfect kingdom. But in the meantime, those of us who receive Christ as Savior, we have this opportunity to be a present-day incarnation of that future kingdom. We are the kingdom of God. We are the kingdom of God. And we willfully put ourselves under King Jesus' authority because we love Him back. And what he, we do what He has told us to do because we love Him. And He has told us to love one another, and He has told us to serve one another, and He has told us to care for the poor, and He has told us to tell other people about Him, and that's exactly what we do. So my prayer for you on this Resurrection Sunday, on this Easter Sunday, is that you will say yes to Jesus, that you will receive these gifts that He has purchased for you with His blood, that you will accept His, not just accept the gifts, but accept his love for you and accept salvation and accept forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Jesus, you have loved us in such a profound way that it is, um, 
it's just difficult for us to process. It's difficult for us to make sense of. I mean, we're human beings. We're not used to, be, to being loved like this. But Jesus, we thank you for your great sacrifice that you have made for us. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for giving up your life for us. We thank you for shedding your blood for us. And Father God, for all of us who have received you, Jesus, as our Savior, I pray that you would allow us to live into this reality that we are your kingdom in this world. And Jesus, for all those who are listening who have not yet said yes to you, we pray that they would say yes right now that they would receive your love and receive forgiveness and receive eternal life. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.